Hello, and welcome to the January 2014 edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. Happy New Year, everybody. I am Matt Skinner, Interim Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive pu- monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. Uh, and we're currently dealing with the polar vortex, which I think uh, might help our, our listener count. Don't you agree, Art? <laughs> Possibly people are indoors. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it also means we're sniffing a little bit because yeah. We all recently came in from the cold. (laughs) So before we go any further, if you're listening to us on iTunes, uh, please do take a minute to rate us highly, and we'll keep getting more listeners. Um, And we'll jump in here. Uh, We'll start with the big news from the January issue concerning uh, important marriage equality rulings out of uh, New Mexico and Utah. And let's begin with New Mexico. Art, can you remind us how uh, a case got to the New Mexico Supreme Court? Well, this this was kind of unusual. What, What happened was... After the Supreme Court of the U.S. announced the Windsor decision on June 26th, uh, pressure built up from the ground up in New Mexico to allow same-sex marriages. Uh, And New Mexico is a special case from among all the states because it was one of the last remaining states that doesn't have marriage equality that also doesn't have an anti-same-sex marriage statute or constitutional amendment. Uh, And some of the key provisions in the New Mexico marriage statute are gender neutral. So people were arguing that same-sex couples already could marry. Now, the attorney general had issued opinions saying, no, they can't, but New Mexico would recognize same-sex marriages from other jurisdictions. Uh, And uh, I think there were a few city councils that were voting, and some clerks were interested in doing it, uh, but some were hesitant. And so there were some applications made to trial judges who then issued orders to the clerks to issue same-sex marriage licenses. So uh, people were getting marriage licenses without the benefit of affirmative legislation, without the benefit of an appellate court ruling, and things were getting a bit tumultuous. Some counties were doing it, some counties were not. The counties that were doing it tended to be the counties that had big cities, so it was a substantial portion of the state's population. And finally, uh, the organization of counties, the New Mexico Association of Counties, said, look, we've got to get some clarity here. They filed a petition in the state Supreme Court asking it to take one of the many pending cases because there were several cases pending at that point. Uh, There was uh, marriage equality litigation affirmatively that had been filed by lesbian and gay rights groups. Uh, There were the individual cases against county clerks. Uh, So... The New Mexico Supreme Court, uh, which under New Mexico's constitution has general supervisory authority over the courts, they decided to take the case and expedite it and uh, held oral arguments and issued an opinion on December 19th, unanimous, uh, which is perhaps more uh, spectacular than it sounds because it's only a five-member state Supreme Court. It's not like seven or nine like many of the others, but all five of them agreed. Uh, in a decision by Justice Edward Chavez that the right to marry is a fundamental right in New Mexico and that it violates the New Mexico Constitution to deprive same-sex couples of this right. And uh, along the way held that uh, sexual orientation discrimination gets heightened scrutiny in New Mexico, which is maybe helpful in other cases, and that none of the reasons advanced by the state to oppose marriage equality would meet the heightened scrutiny test. So uh, immediately, uh, same-sex marriage, which was already available in many counties, became available uh, statewide in New Mexico. 
And the amazing thing about this, really, is to see how a Supreme Court opinion, even not directly on point, uh, the Supreme Court opinion striking down Section 3 of DOMA, let loose a flood of litigation and legal developments around the country. And in states where there was already momentum building up towards same-sex marriage, it got such an incredible push, as we saw last month with the legislative developments in Hawaii and Illinois. Uh, I think think the Windsor decision sort of put us over the top politically on those, and it put us over the top judicially in New Mexico. And sort of in a weird uh, twist of fate, it turned out New Mexico was not necessarily the most interesting story for December. We uh, had a very some very interesting developments in Utah. Can you uh, yeah. bring us up to speed there? Art? Now this is this is really strange. Yeah. Uh, same-sex marriage litigation had actually been filed in Utah last spring. That was the case that was pending. Yeah. It was just sort of sitting there, uh, and then the Windsor decision comes out, and the parties uh, cross-filed for summary judgment. The judge held uh, oral arguments, I believe it was late October, and said, you know, I think I'll, I'll probably be able to get a decision out by sometime in January. Yeah. And then the New Mexico decision came out, and it was almost as if that lit a fire under Judge Robert Shelby in the U.S. District Court in Salt Lake City because he immediately issued his decision the next day, and it was, as far as I can tell, the first judicial ruling to cite the New Mexico Supreme Court, which he does in a footnote. Yeah. And just to back up a little on the judge, I mean, I think a lot of the headlines sort of said Obama judge, you know, orders marriage equality in Utah, but he was recommended by both of the very hard-right Republican senators. Yeah, what we have to remember on federal district court appointments is that federal district court appointments, pretty much by custom, are recommended to the president by the senators of the state. Uh, And if both senators in the state are Republicans, I mean, the president may reject the recommendations if if they decide that someone is just too far beyond the realm of what they can tolerate. Uh, But in this case, uh, Judge Shelby, uh, according to newspaper reports, is a registered Republican. He's a a military veteran. He had a business-oriented practice. Uh, He was recommended by Orrin Hatch and Mike Lee, who are uh, not shrinking violets when it comes to being conservatives. Uh, and they, they both praised him as being, you know, very solid and conscientious. And if you look at his opinion, he is. It's, yeah. it's an extraordinarily well-done opinion. It was done very quickly, obviously. Uh, it's, it's likely that after he heard oral arguments and, and read the briefs, he was immediately convinced and started drafting an opinion. But clearly it wasn't finished until that morning yeah. <laughs> because he added the New Mexico site. So that was the finishing touch. Yeah. And he really took uh, Justice Scalia's advice in his Windsor yes. dissent, right? This this was this was the fun part, although some people have criticized him for sort of, uh, you know, uh, giving the finger to Justice <laughs> Scalia, as one critic said. Uh, in in both uh, Lawrence versus Texas, the sodomy decision from 2003, and U.S. v. Windsor last year's DOMA decision, Justice Scalia bemoaned the majority opinions as opening the way to same-sex marriage. Uh, he pointed in Lawrence versus Texas to a, a phrase in Justice Kennedy's opinion about uh, the personal rights that are protected by the Due Process Clause, including the right to marry. And he said, and homosexuals as well as heterosexuals, of course, have the same due process rights. Uh, and he said, well, that opens the door to same-sex marriage. And then in Windsor, he actually took a part of the majority opinion. And in his dissent, presented an edited version of it where he crossed out and filled in words. And he said, and see, this would be a same-sex marriage opinion that channels Windsor. 
so uh, Justice, Judge Shelby said, well, I agree with Justice Scalia. Uh, given Windsor as a Supreme Court precedent, I think Baker versus Nelson, that old Minnesota case from the 1970s, is no longer binding. And the Supreme Court has clearly elevated this to a serious constitutional question. And using the rationale of the court in Windsor, how can you deny same-sex couples the right to marry? But in the course of getting there, he did some wonderful things. He, among other things, accepted the sex discrimination argument, which had first been embraced by the Hawaii Supreme Court back in uh, the Bear versus Lewin case back in the 1990s that said that uh, saying that same-sex couples can't marry establishes a sex classification. And under the Equal Protection Clause, sex classifications get heightened scrutiny. But he also said that uh, what the plaintiffs are seeking here is not the right of same-sex marriage. They're seeking the right to marry that every citizen has uh, under Supreme Court precedence. And he said, since the Supreme Court has identified the right to marry as a fundamental right, it should be a strict scrutiny case in terms of due process. Uh, but he said, I don't really have to go there because it seems to me that the state's arguments in their motion for summary judgment don't even meet the rational basis test. And this is not to discount the possibility that some of the state's arguments might have some weight, but that what you have to do in justifying the denial of a fundamental right or even any ordinary right that has constitutional protection is to show how denying the right advances the interests that are articulated. And he says, the state never shows how denying same-sex couples the right to marry will in any way enhance heterosexual marriage. Right. I mean, it's, there's no way it does that, yeah. he says. And uh, he cited one amicus brief that had provided data about the marriage rates and the divorce rates in states with same-sex marriage. And now we're... We're coming up on the 10th anniversary of same-sex marriage in the U.S. Yep. when the Massachusetts decision went into effect in May 2004. Yep. You know, so we've had more than nine years of data from Massachusetts. Has the marriage rate gone down drastically in Massachusetts? No, it stayed about the same. Has the divorce rate gone up? No, it stayed about the same. Yeah. And Massachusetts was famous as being a state with one of the highest marriage rates and lowest divorce rates in the country. Yeah. So, and you look at the other states. We don't have as much data because uh, it was a few years after Massachusetts that we then won same-sex marriage in other states. But we have accumulating data and uh, predictions that marriage would be on the rocks, that straight people would decide not to get married because gay people were getting married. It's just ridiculous. And I think because this decision was maybe so unexpected, I think there was, I mean, just looking at the pictures and the coverage coming out of uh, Salt Lake City. I mean, just the joy. I mean, the pictures of Boy Scouts bringing pizza to the people waiting in line. I mean, it yeah. was something really special. Yeah, about this. and the Boy Scouts ban on gays didn't even expire until January first. <laughs> so you know they were taking a risk yes. there. But uh, but it but it seemed to me that, that what was important was that Shelby's decision was a very very carefully drafted scholarly decision, yeah. and uh, one problem that Utah had was that the Attorney General of Utah had resigned the previous month in a scandal, a political scandal of some sort. And so he had resigned. They had acting people running the Attorney General's office. Uh, Presumably the motion for summary judgment was filed while he was still there because the hearing was back in October. 
And in that motion for summary judgment, the state, assuming they were going to win, I don't know, uh, they didn't ask for a stay in case they lost. Right. And so the judge didn't say anything about it in his opinion. Judge Shelby just issued his order, an injunction against the state, which uh, anyone reading the opinion would read it and say, okay, now the state has to allow same-sex marriage. Uh, so uh, as soon as the word spread, I'm sure it spread fast on the Internet and radio and TV in Salt Lake and, and throughout Utah, uh, same-sex couples started streaming into county clerk offices. Mm -hmm. And some county clerks refused to issue licenses that Friday afternoon. Uh, some county clerks, this is December 20th, some county clerks were eager to. In fact, the mayor of Salt Lake City rushed over to the county building yeah. and started performing weddings, yes. including a wedding of the uh, majority leader, a or rather the Democratic Party chair, yep. uh, Jim DeBacchus, and his uh, same-sex partner were among the first to get married. And... Uh, Meanwhile, someone from the attorney general's office, in a panic, they call up the judge. They say, Your Honor, can we have a stay while we seek an appeal in the Tenth Circuit? And he said, well, you didn't ask for it. And they said, yeah, but it's sort of an emergency. He said, well, you know, due process. If you ask for it, I have to give the other side an opportunity to respond. So you've got to give me a motion in writing. Uh, so later that evening, they managed to gin up quickly a motion in writing. Well, and I'm sure this was the Friday before Christmas. Was, I'm sure most yeah. of the people in the office were halfway out the door right. when this all happened. I, I think the people in the uh, in the uh, legal department of the state of Utah had a very busy Christmas. Yes. So so they got it on file, and uh, the plaintiffs in the case got their response on file on Sunday, and on Monday morning at nine o'clock, bright and early, there was a hearing. But something else happened bright and early uh, Monday morning in Salt Lake County. And that is the clerk's open, clerk's office opened at 8. And a line had been forming since Sunday evening. There was a line that, like, wound around the block several times. Mm -hmm. It was like hundreds of people. They broke records in Salt Lake County in marriage licenses and in several other counties uh, in Utah. But at any rate, people started getting married 8 in the morning. And meanwhile, the uh, uh, argument was going on in uh, Judge Shelby's courtroom. He heard oral arguments. He took a brief recess. He came back and said, motion denied, and I'll issue an opinion later. And actually later in the day, he issued what he probably was working on all weekend. He issued his opinion explaining why he was denying the stay, which uh, went through all the tests for whether an opinion should be stayed. And in the meantime, uh, anticipating what Judge Shelby would do, mm -hmm. uh, the Attorney General's office had filed two petitions over the weekend with the Tenth Circuit motion panel asking for a stay, both of which were rebuffed. They said the trial judge gets to rule on it first. And so as soon as Shelby ruled on it, they were on the phone to the Tenth Circuit in Denver. And the, Which, by the way, is considered a conservative circuit, correct? Well, it's, it's a circuit that's been changing because we have an even division now. There are ten judges on the circuit five appointed by Democratic presidents, five appointed by Republican presidents, yeah. and I think two or three vacancies. Uh, so it's an evenly divided circuit politically, okay. but uh, the motion panel had one Republican judge and one Democratic judge, mm -hmm. and they unanimously rebuffed the state. Mm -hmm. And just maybe to inject a note of drama, because people were getting married like crazy on Monday the yeah. 23rd yeah. and Tuesday the 24th, yeah. and then right at the end of business on Tuesday, on Christmas Eve, the two-judge panel issued their ruling denying the stay. Yeah. But I think, and, and this, perhaps it was because of the rush nature of it, but they did not provide a detailed explanation. They just said, you know, having reviewed the district court's opinion, which was issued on Monday afternoon, 
and the arguments of the parties we find a stay isn't warranted. Uh, so as soon as the clerk's offices around the state opened on December 26th, uh, the governor and the uh, acting attorney general advised the clerks around the state, well, the Tenth Circuit has denied a stay. We're going to ask the Supreme Court for a stay, but it's going to take some time. In the meanwhile, you've got to comply. So within hours, every clerk's office in the state was uh, receiving applications uh, from marriage licenses. So. I, I thought the, the latest number I've seen is something like 1,324 same-sex couples got married. Uh, a petition was filed by the Attorney General's office. Uh, in the absence of an Attorney General, they hired an Idaho attorney, uh, Monty Stewart. Who had some history uh, with uh, who, who had some history with this issue, who, yeah. whose name was on some amicus briefs in the Hollingsworth Prop 8 cases. Right. Uh, and he filed a petition for a stay with, the, with Justice Sotomayor, who's the Tenth Circuit Justice, and even though she's from the Bronx. Yep. <laughs> they don't have anyone from the West. You know, it's, it's funny that uh, presidents recently have not been appointing people from the West to the Supreme Court, so they've been assigning East Coast justices. Yep. So, uh, and in she, a funny twist, she yeah. turned out to be high above Times Square, uh, right. controlling the ball drop uh, the day uh, that these papers were filed. Right. So, uh, well, she, she uh, immediately notified the uh, respondents on this application, the plaintiffs below, that they had until Friday at noon to uh, submit their opposition. And then uh, Mr. Stewart filed papers responding to their opposition. And on Monday morning, January 6th, uh, Justice Sotomayor had referred the matter to the entire court, which in politically fraught cases they tend to do. And the entire court announced that they would stay without any explanation whatsoever. And we have and no breakdown of the vote, correct? No, no idea of what the vote was. Uh, they don't always issue dissenting opinions on denials of stays. I mean, they, they do occasionally issue dissenting opinions on uh, denials of cert, yeah. but very unusual for this kind of interlocutory motion to have a, uh, anyone write an opinion. So we don't know how if it was unanimous or not or what the breakdown was, but certainly a majority of the court thought that uh, the opinion should be stayed. So from December 20th through January 3rd, same-sex couples were marrying in Utah, which made Utah, depending how you count, the 18th state. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's the capper on marriage equality for 2013. We started the year with nine states plus the District of Columbia. We ended the year with 18 states plus the District of Columbia. I don't think we can maintain that pace of yeah. doubling every year. Yeah. I mean, that would mean we'd have 36 states, same-sex marriage in 2014. Yeah. That only happens, I think, if the Supreme Court issues a ruling yeah. on the merits in one of these cases. And given the timing, I think it's unlikely uh, because uh, the two-judge panel in the Tenth Circuit, which denied the stay in the same opinion, said, we will set an expedited calendar for the consideration of this appeal. Yeah. And subsequently, they announced a briefing schedule, and the folks in Utah said, well, hold on, we need a little more time. Yeah. You know, but uh, initial briefs are supposed to be filed the end of January, before the end of January, responding briefs before the end of February. They haven't scheduled an argument yet, but presumably it will be in March. Yeah. Uh, and if they push themselves, maybe they'll have an opinion out in April or May. Yeah. And if a cert petition is filed at that point, uh, even if it's promptly granted, because uh, whoever wins or loses, whoever loses is going to file a cert petition. And if the state loses in the Tenth Circuit, 
uh, I think the cert petition is sure to be granted. Mm -hmm. If uh, the state wins in the Tenth Circuit, the cert, cert petition might be turned down by the court. Uh, but that would depend on what's happening in the Ninth Circuit with the Sevchik case for Nevada, mm -hmm. which is also supposed to be argued this spring. Yeah. Uh, and if the Ninth Circuit pushes itself to a quick opinion, the two opinions might actually emerge in roughly the same time frame. Yeah. Uh, so who knows? But if the Supreme Court grants cert on a marriage equality case over the summer, uh, the chances are they'll already have a pretty full docket from the cert grants they've made over the course of the winter and spring, uh, so they wouldn't have an argument until sometime in the spring of 2015. So it, it seems to me that the likelihood is uh, that we'll end up having an argument, because I think either the Tenth Circuit or the Ninth Circuit is going to rule in our favor, one or the other. Mm -hmm. If we lost both of those, I'd be very surprised, although it's always a possibility. Uh, but if we win one of those circuit courts, we get to the Supreme Court on this, because the state will petition. Yeah. And because uh, attorney generals from all around the country who are now defending marriage equality cases will file uh, amicus briefs urging the court to take a marriage equality case, I think. Yeah. Now, meanwhile, do we know the status of all these couples that got married in Utah? This is one of the remaining puzzles. Uh, I think it's likely that the federal government will recognize those marriages because they were legal when they were contracted, at least as of now. Yeah. Uh, if the Tenth Circuit reverses, then there's a question. Uh, are they void ab initio, or are they uh, like the marriages that took place uh, in California in the summer of 2008, or are they like the marriages that took place in California in the spring of 2004? See, uh, when uh, the mayor of, of San Francisco ordered the clerk to issue marriage licenses, Gavin Newsom, uh, in uh, February 2004, and uh, there was a rush of people from around the country to San Francisco. They got married. Uh, the state challenged that, and the uh, California Supreme Court said those weren't valid. Yeah. Uh, but then, in 2008, the California Supreme Court ruled in May 2008 in the marriage cases that uh, same-sex couples had a right to marry in California. That went into effect mid-June. People started getting married. Prop 8 was passed that uh, November. The state stopped having marriages. Uh, Prop 8 was challenged in court, and the California Supreme Court said uh, Prop 8 was validly enacted, but all those marriages that took place are legal and still valid because at the time they were legal and valid. So, you know, we, we this might have to get sorted out in litigation. The yeah. Utah Supreme Court might have to weigh in on the validity of these marriages. Yeah. Uh, and then depending what the Tenth Circuit does. You know, in the meantime, uh, and this is the immediately pressing question as to which the Utah Attorney General is studying the matter, and one hopes will make a statement in the next few days. Are these marriages going to be recognized by the state of Utah while the stay is in effect? And this is very important. There was a, a an article in the New York Times going into some detail about uh, couples who are expecting children. You know, will the state recognize them as married and put both names on the marriage license? Uh, what if someone dies during this period, mm -hmm. uh, who's who married uh, in December? Uh, will the surviving spouse be treated as a surviving spouse under state law? What about intestate succession? Right. What about death benefits? Uh, the uh, state had uh, advised, or at least the governor's office had advised uh, state agencies uh, while the uh, injunction was in effect that uh, their employees who had same-sex spouses could sign them up benefits. Is the state going to rescind that or is the state yeah. going to honor that because some people signed up? 
So there's a bit of a mess yeah. created by the stay. It sort of brings to mind some of the drama from some of the earlier states where, uh, uh, you know, the, the executive branch of those states was very hostile to a court decision that said, you know, marriage equality has to happen. But in those cases, there were state courts, at least on the sides of the plaintiffs. And I think it's, it's yet to be seen with what the yeah. state courts are going to say about, about these. Yeah, whether this ends up in state court. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, for now, Jack Shelby is sort of shackled by the Supreme Court stay. Yeah. Uh, the Tenth Circuit is obviously not going to address any of these issues on the merits until they get to the oral argument down yeah. the line. So, interesting situation. But okay. in the meantime, you know, we have 18 states. Yeah. And we have closing in on 40% of the population. Uh, we only need one or two other big states to drop to get over 50%. Yeah. I think uh, it's, it's important to remind people that there are several dozen marriage equality cases on file around the country. Uh, some are in federal courts. Some are in state courts. Right. Uh, some summary judgment motions are on file. Uh, it's likely that we will have opinions dropping over the next few months from mm -hmm. trial courts and summary judgments. Mm -hmm. We may see the Utah scenario play out elsewhere, although I think now I think now all of the defendants in these cases know that in any summary judgment argument they have to ask for a stay. Yeah. So it's unlikely that we're going to have this situation where a trial judge won't stay, at least a federal trial judge, because of the Supreme Court having stayed Utah. Yeah. I think that sends a signal that uh, same-sex marriage isn't going to go into effect as a result of a trial judge decision. It's going to have to be an appellate decision. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the lesson I take away from the Supreme Court's grant of the state. All right. All right. A lot to uh, go over there. We're going to take a short break, and when we return, we'll move off of marriage and discuss a Colorado decision on whether a child can legally have two parents of the same sex. All right, we're back discussing the case of Inri A.R.L., Limbaris v. Havens, a case recently decided by a mid-level appellate court in Colorado, finding that a child may have two parents of the same sex under the state's version of the Uniform Parentage Act. First, Art, can you explain to our listeners what the Uniform Parentage Act is? Okay, well, the uh, Commissioners on Uniform State Laws, uh, quite a while back, issued a proposed Uniform Parentage Act to the states to be adopted by uh, state legislatures, and Colorado is one of many states that have adopted the Uniform Parentage Act, uh, which provides model language for dealing with issues like custody and visitation and things of that sort. And this was a, a question of first impression for Colorado in a, in a rather unusual case, uh, a lesbian couple who had been together for years. They attempted to have a child through donor insemination. It didn't work out. Uh, and then one of the members uh, had a friend who agreed to inseminate her the old-fashioned way. <laughs> she was willing to have sex with him in order to have a kid uh, without telling her partner. Yeah. <laughs> so now, strange. did the partner think that the baby was conceived by immaculate conception? Or, uh, I got it. Pro probably, <laughs> it just wasn't told before. Pro right? Probably thought it, that this was uh, a result of one of the unsuccessful artificial insemination okay. attempts. But <laughs> any case, uh, the... The facts came out when the kid was born because uh, the guy's name was on the birth certificate as the father. Uh, the women agreed to give the child the co-parent's last name. Uh, but uh, Seems like it would be a great script for a sitcom. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but, but the, the birth mother was listed as the mother on the birth certificate. I guess, I guess the, uh, 
the man wasn't listed on the birth certificate. It's, it's, uh, it's unclear to me. But at any rate, they had some difficulties uh, within a short time okay. after the birth of the child, as sometimes happens, and they split up. And now the, uh, the co-parent wants to be recognized as a parent. Uh, she applied for a second parent adoption, but was denied. Uh, it seems that Colorado now has a civil union act under which same-sex couples could register, but uh, that went into effect after these events. Uh, so she was turned down on a second parent adoption. She filed a declaration of maternity under the Colorado Uniform Parentage Act. She said that she should be treated as a presumed parent because... Uh, in compliance with the terms of that act, she received the child into her home. The biological father had no desire to be a part of the child's life and had act, said that even though uh, we had sexual intercourse, I was just acting as a sperm donor. Uh, and uh, she argued, uh, uh, the birth mother argued, that she couldn't be a presumed parent under the Uniform Heritage Act because the child already had a biological mother and a known biological father. So how could a third party be a presumed parent when the, there wasn't a, an anonymous sperm donor? Uh, the trial court agreed with her and said, I'm not going to create a new legal category in this case. But the Court of Appeals said, uh, you know, as a matter of statutory construction, uh, under the law, we think that a second parent of the same sex can be. Uh, and... An important part of this is that the Uniform Parentage Act says that terms like mother and father shall be construed as gender neutral when the context requires. And uh, here the Colorado Court of Appeals was able to draw on prior case law from California and New Mexico in recent years, construing the Uniform Parentage Act in such a way uh, that a child can have two parents, two legal parents of the same sex. Uh, they haven't gotten to the point of California. California recently adopted a statute under which a child could have three legal parents. Uh, but Colorado isn't that far along. Yeah. So it was crucial to this ruling that the man who had inseminated uh, one of the women uh, the old-fashioned way was not interested in being a legal father, was not interested in uh, asserting any parental rights. Okay. And how does this match up with sort of where other states are on this issue? I know you mentioned California. Uh, well, uh, we do have second-parent adoption in many states. Yeah. Uh, and, and so clearly many states now have gotten to the point of saying, yes, a child can have two mothers, a child can have two fathers mm -hmm. legally. Uh, having two mothers with a known sperm donor, I think the Uniform Parentage Act facilitates that uh, when, when the facts line up correctly. But it's, it's important to note that there, there are still some states that don't have appellate precedent in this area. And so now that we have a growing body of appellate precedent under a uniform statute, uh, that's very useful because of the uniformity of the wording of the statute. It's easier to get courts to follow decisions from other jurisdictions. All right. All right thank you very much, Art. And we are going to take a short break again. And when we come back, talk about some disappointing setbacks internationally. We are back uh, discussing the international setbacks for the LGBT community in December 2013. And let's start in India, uh, where the news was very disappointing and included a really stunning setback. 
uh, in Kushal versus Nas Foundation, the Supreme Court of India brought back to life that country's penal code section banning carnal intercourse against the order of nature. Um, Art, first, what's the history of this section of the Indian penal code? Well, this was introduced in the 1860s by the British when they were administering, administering India as a colony. And uh, Section 377, uh, the section in question, uh, pops up all over the British Commonwealth. Uh, it's, it's part of the legacy of the British. Uh, they introduced uh, the Victorian uh, jurisprudence uh, banning, uh, as it's called, carnal intercourse against the order of nature. And uh, this is being litigated in Singapore. It's being litigated in various former British colonies uh, as to whether this violates the post-independence constitutions mm. that were adopted. So in India, uh, after India became independent, they adopted an Indian Penal Code, and they just continued this six, Section 377 as part of the Indian Penal Code. And as the uh, two-judge panel of the Supreme Court uh, commented in this decision, the sex crimes provisions of the Indian Penal Code have been amended numerous times since uh, the 1950s when this was adopted, and somehow the Parliament has never seen fit to alter this Victorian-era you know, 1860s statute. So uh, what happened was, and uh, here we, uh, we have an article in Law Notes by one of our contributing writers, uh, Rob Wintermute, who is a leading authority on, on British and European community law at uh, King's College in London. And he points out that this case could not have happened in the United States in the way it happened because of our standing requirements. Mm -hmm. uh, NAS Foundation is a non-profit, non-governmental organization that works to combat AIDS in India. And it has never been prosecuted under the sodomy laws. Uh, it, it says that the existence of this sodomy law makes their work more difficult, uh, that they get in trouble occasionally with law enforcement authorities when they're trying to distribute condoms, when they're trying to uh, present safer sex educational materials uh, because they're teaching people how to violate the law safely. Right. Uh, so they say it's an impeding their work. Uh, so they filed a lawsuit in the high court in Delhi, which is one of 24 superior trial courts in India which can hear constitutional challenges to statutes. They claimed that this violated various sections of the Indian Constitution, which includes concepts of due process, equality, privacy. Uh, the uh, High Court ruled on July 2, 2009, that the sodomy law was unconstitutional. And the government indicated no disposition to appeal that. So people treated that as pretty much a final decision uh, lots of people came out in India. There, there was a big gay community, but it was all sort of under covers because of the problems that presented by the sodomy law, which has a rather drastic life sentence uh, for willful violations. And we remember from you know our own experience here in the United States how um, you know the effect that these sodomy statutes really have on and it's very stigmatizing. Exactly. It leads to discrimination, etc. So a lot of people came out. Uh, there was sort of the birth of an open gay community in India. There was a lot of celebration about this. And yet, of course, there were forces in Indian society that were deeply offended by this, mainly religious, uh, conservative religious forces. And it seems that in India, not only is standing very loosely defined at the trial level, it's even more loosely defined at the appellate level. Anyone who's offended by a trial court ruling can ask the Supreme Court to review it. 
Now, they don't have to grant review, but the Supreme Court did grant review. And the uh, structure of the court, uh, and I've, I've been learning a lot about this because of this case, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the structure of the court is that they decide cases in panels of two, but there are an enormous number of judges. Yeah. Uh, it's it's because you know we sometimes forget India is one of the most populous countries in the world after China. India is enormous. The the volume, the volume of litigation yeah. is incredible. Yeah. They they need lots of Supreme Court justices. Uh, so a two judge court decides a case, but the government can petition, the parties can petition for it to be reviewed by a larger panel, and the government has asked for a larger panel to review this, a five judge panel. So it could be that this opinion will be reversed. But on December 11th, this two-judge panel reversed, to the shock of just about everybody, reversed the Delhi High Court mm. and reinstated the sodomy law in India. It, it resulted in an outcry. Now, the decision of the court is very puzzling. Uh, the decisions of the, of the High Court of India uh, are issued in English. Uh, some might criticize it as not quite totally idiomatic English from the point of view of an American lawyer, but it's understandable. Uh, but it seems illogical. Uh, the opinion, in fact, seems to suggest, as you're reading it, it seems to suggest, yeah, we're probably going to affirm this decision because it seems to be in accord with our other decisions and other international bodies, et cetera, et cetera. And then they turn around and say, but we have a principle in India that the parliament ha enjoys a presumption of regularity when they pass statutes or when they reaffirm existing statutes and that it's not the role of the courts and blah, blah, blah. It's a... It's a big judicial restraint decision, mm -hmm. and it also minimizes the effect of the law. It says, uh, first of all, that the law is not anti-gay. It criminalizes uh, carnal intercourse against the order of nature by anybody. could be violated by different sex couples as well as same-sex couples. They said to the extent that it might be used by the government or by private actors to discriminate, that's not authorized by the statute. That's not a problem with the statute. That's something else. They're misusing the statute or they're using it to discriminate. Uh, and it, it also pointed out that in terms of written court records, it could find only about 200 prosecutions in the time since the 1860s when the statute's been in effect, which says nothing about the impact of the statute. Yeah, it's a real right. glossing over the yeah. reality of the situation. Right, written yeah. court records, you know, trial court convictions don't generate opinions yep. unless they're appealed. Yeah. And people tend not to appeal these things. Uh, it's it's sort of unusual. There aren't a lot of appellate opinions about consensual sodomy yeah. between parties and private. Well, uh, I remember even from the U.S. how hard it was to find a case that right. we could The Hardwick case sort of fell into our laps, and then the Lawrence case yeah. sort of fell into our laps, yeah. but it was 17 years between them, yeah. and, and everyone was looking for a new case. Uh, so, uh, so this decision... In a sense, it's final because it's a decision by the Supreme Court of India, but it's only a two-judge bench. The government has asked for review. The parties have asked for review. It's possible that a larger bench will be convened. Uh, the judge who wrote the opinion retired that day, <laughs> so he won't even be participating. Uh, and also, uh, it seems that the individual Indian states can undertake their own efforts to reform the sodomy law within their states, although they would require... Uh, assent from the national government. The current national government probably would give assent because uh, the prime minister and various other ministers have expressed disagreement with this decision. Uh, but 
the legislative process moves slowly. Uh, a national election is pending. Yeah, and I, I know the, what I've read about it is that they're p- expecting a more conservative party to to you know, win that election, which probably and a party happen. whose leaders have stated support for exactly. the Supreme Court decision. So, yeah. uh, if if there's going to be a change in India, it's going to have to be from the Supreme Court, most likely. Yeah. So, that's India. Then All right. The other development is Australia. Yes. Um, so. Uh, uh, why don't we start our by maybe just talking a little bit about how the the federal the federal system they have in Australia that sort of uh, might give some background to how this case uh, developed. Yeah, well, Australia is a British Commonwealth country, and they do have states and a federal government, and the division of authority over subject matter of legislation is somewhat different than in the United States because the uh, constitution that was adopted in Australia does authorize the uh, federal government to legislate on the subject of marriage. Uh, Until relatively recently, it hadn't. Uh, The states had adopted their own marriage laws. Uh, But as agitation for same-sex marriage mounted up, a conservative government was in power, and they drew upon that jurisdictional authority to pass a federal marriage act, which provides the marriage as a union of one man and one woman. Uh, But there were arguments arguments that, uh, on balance, given the Australian High Court decision, which is their, their federal Supreme Court, uh, arguments that were not persuasive to the court, uh, that the federal statute did not displace the ability of the states to legislate on marriage. In, in other words, they were trying to do what has happened in the United States, where individual states have legislatively adopted same-sex marriage. And in fact, just retrospectively looking at 2013, we doubled the number of states. A lot of that was by legislation. It was it was by the legislatures in Rhode Island and uh, Delaware. And New and York? Nevada. Well, New York was 2011. Right. But of the nine that we got, I think four or five of them were legislative. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, we, we, we don't have a centralized national definition of marriage, especially now that Windsor came along right. and knocked out Section 3 yeah. of DOMA. But in Australia... Uh, the Australian Capital Territory, yeah. which is the analog to our District of Columbia, uh, has always been on the forefront of trying to accommodate same-sex couples. They tried to do super unions. They've tried all kinds of stuff. They passed a marriage law yeah. this fall, and uh, the federal government challenged it, went to the high court, and the high court said the Federal Marriage Act preempts. Uh, they said that the Australian Capital Territory cannot legislate for same-sex marriage. On the other hand, one of the arguments that had been made by the government was that, or at least by some opponents of same-sex marriage, was by referring to marriage in the Constitution, which dates back to the beginning of the 20th century, the word marriage as used in the Constitution should be given the meaning that it would have had at that time, which was the union of a man and a woman, which would say that the federal uh, legislature does not have authority to legislate in favor of same-sex marriage, yeah. that its its authority is limited to legislating for marriage as that term is, is known a uh, century ago. And the high court rejected that argument totally. Yeah. They said it is our constitution is a living constitution. And they, without naming him, they rejected Justice Scalia's interpretation of constitutional law. Uh, Justice Scalia says when the Constitution is written, its meaning is locked in, and it's not up to later courts to give it new meanings. 
uh, and they said exactly the opposite. They right. said a constitution is a document that has to be adapted to changing times, which means if the federal government wants to legislate for marriage equality, they can do so. Yeah. And there is a possibility that that will come up for a vote this year. The current prime minister is opposed yeah. to marriage equality. His lesbian sister is really rapping him for his position on the issue. Yeah. There's a lot of pressure to allow a free vote rather than a vote governed by party discipline. There's speculation as to whether a free vote would carry the day or not. Yeah. It's uncertain. But uh, this is not the end of the line for marriage equality in Australia. Yeah. This is a road bump. But basically, um, the the idea is that their sort of states that they have in Australia could not do what has happened in the U.S. and right. sort of decide uh, on their own. To... Uh, according to this decision by the Supreme Court uh, issued on December 12th. All right. All right. Thanks, Art. Um, we're going to take our last short break and finish up with a very ironic case out of Indiana concerning the legal ramifications or lack thereof of a gender change to an existing marriage. All right, we're back. Um, and so, Art, it turns out, uh, for our of note section here, it turns out that some same-sex marriages are legal in Indiana, um, which is a bit of a surprise, considering they have a statute on the books uh, defining marriage as the union of one man and one woman. Uh, can you tell our listeners how that came to be in a state like Indiana? Okay. Uh, what happened was a guy married a gal in 1999. And uh, they had a child in 2005, but by then, the husband had already been diagnosed with gender dysphoria. That is, that uh, he felt he was a she and wanted to initiate the process. Had, had gotten diagnosed, uh, petitioned for a name change, petitioned for a change of gender notification on his birth certificate, and uh, petitioned for a divorce from his wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but still wanted, uh, you know, they, they had, it was an amicable divorce. They were negotiating custody and uh, visitation and things of that sort. And they went to a trial court uh, to get approval of their uh, agreement. And the trial judge initially approved it, but then had second thoughts. And it's not really explained by the Indiana Court of Appeals decision why the trial judge, sua sponte, had second thoughts. But the trial judge withdrew approval and said, well, on the date that a trial court approved your change of gender, you were legally a woman. And in Indiana, a woman can't be married to a woman. And therefore, I don't think I have any jurisdiction to approve your separation agreement and divorce because I can only divorce a married couple and your marriage became void on the date you became a woman. Well, this sort of leaves things in limbo. Uh, And an appeal was taken to the Court of Appeals of Indiana and said, hold on a minute. A marriage that was valid when it's contracted remains valid until it's dissolved. And, it's, and a marriage can only be dissolved through a divorce proceeding. And uh, in particular, the child's interest has to be taken into account here and the ability of the court to rule on issues of custody and visitation, things of that sort. And so the uh, Court of Appeals said, no, the sex change did not invalidate the marriage. Only a divorce can invalidate the marriage. Uh, and so ironically... Uh, this is this is happening at a time when this is a very hot issue in Indiana because the process of amending the Constitution there requires two separate legislatures, an election intervening to approve an amendment before it goes on the ballot. The legislature has approved a, an Indiana marriage amendment, but a second vote is required. 
There's intense debate throughout the state about this. There were resolutions being passed by chambers of commerce, by municipalities, uh, almost all opposed to the marriage amendment because they feel it will make Indiana uh, unfriendly to gay people, it's bad for business, et cetera. But in the meantime, both in the meantime, houses of the legislature and the governor are yeah, but Republican, this, right? I, uh, yeah, and, and I would say that this is a rather extreme way yeah. to have a same-sex marriage. <laughs> right, no, I agree <laughs> but, with you. Uh, but, but it seems to me that it's, it's, the decision seems quite sound. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, thank you for that interesting case out of Indiana Art. That's all the time we have for today. And thank you very much for listening. Um, just a quick note, if you're an attorney in the New York area, I hope you can join Art and I next week for uh, the annual LGBT Year in Review uh, CLE. To register for that CLE or to read the latest issue of Law Notes, uh, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting uh, www.legal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars there if you like the podcast. Follow Legal on Twitter at LGBTBarNY or like us on Facebook. Thanks again. We'll see you next month.